Psst. Neha, what's the tea? You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Hi, Neil. How are you? Pretty good. How's it going? It's going good. I'm really excited to talk about this book today. I feel like I've been trying not to text you about it so hard to try and save the discussion for the podcast. I know. And I think you always finish the books a little before I do. I was reading this up until yesterday, so I am excited. But before we talk at all about the book or what it's about, we did just want to put out a content warning. This book contains a lot of animal cruelty and mentions of suicide. And so if that's not for you, you can skip this episode entirely or just fast forward to the parts that are okay for you. Well, do you have a summary for us today? Yeah, so this book is about a girl named Elsa. And she, when the book starts out, is nine years old and she sees a really horrific Thing. She sees this hunter killing and maiming her reindeer, and then he threatens her that if she tells anyone, he'll kill her. The first part of this book is when Elsa's a child, and she's kind of dealing with this trauma from that act. And um, crucial to the story is that she is part of the Sami culture, the Sami people. She lives with her two parents and her brother Matthias. And she's very close with another family that lived nearby as well, who are also Sami. The girl's name is Anna Steina. Anna Steina has an uncle who kind of is more like a big brother to both of them named Lass or Lassa. I don't know how it's pronounced exactly. And then his sister and Anna Steina's mother is Hannah. And she is kind of an aunt figure to Elsa throughout the book. The man who did this act, Robert Isaacson, he's not part of the Sami culture. And he, throughout the book, is pretty violent and kind of a background threat. Elsa, as she gets older, the second part of the book is when she is, it's 10 years later. She is 18 now and she finally has the impetus to talk to the police independently. She did a little bit when she was a child, but she was kind of scared. And a lot of these reports just are dead ends. And she keeps trying to talk to them. She talks to a journalist and things kind of keep going from there. She meets some other people. There's a girl named Nina who wants to be a lawyer and fight back against all of these horrible acts. And that's as much as I'll say for now without including any spoilers. The book is, I think I would describe it as a coming-of-age story, kind of, because more than a third of the book is when Elsa is little. Mm -hmm. And I think it focuses on the trauma that she went through at that age, even in the second and third parts of the book. Also, when you're 18, even though technically you're an adult, I don't think you're like actually an adult so i would still say that it was a coming of age story even when she was older but yeah what theme did you pick the theme i picked was silence 
Stop. Was that your theme? Is this the first time we picked the same oh theme? Oh my gosh. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be a not that obvious theme. Same. <laughs> oh no. What do we do? Well, okay, I had a backup. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a sign that we both picked the same theme because obviously it's a very important part of the book. So maybe let's just stick with it. But I do want to know your backup theme too. What was My it? other theme was dignity. Mm. And I think in the first couple of chapters, I saw both of those, but the silence really stood out to me as I kept reading. Yeah, me too. Well, you talk about first why you picked it, and then maybe I can talk about why I picked it, and hopefully maybe the and there'll be differences in the reasons why. I picked the theme because Elsa initially doesn't speak out. There's this threat from this adult who she doesn't know. And as far as she knows, as a nine-year-old, it's real. And then I saw the book also kept coming back to it in different ways. The first time she visits the chorale, she sings to overcome that silence and kind of give her some company. Mm-hmm. And there was one quote that really stood out to me. includes a pretty graphic description of animal violence. But it's, reindeer were quiet. They didn't scream if someone cut them with a knife. They didn't scream when the wolverine bit into their necks and paralyzed their bodies. They didn't have screaming in them. And so that, when I read that, I was like, this is going to be a really important theme. Mm -hmm. What about you? I think it stood out a lot to me specifically because it's the last two books that we read too. Mm Because in Murmur of Bees, the main character doesn't speak and in the second book that we read fruit of the drunken tree similarly the main character does not speak as a trauma response and it's something that she deals with so that was the first time i saw it as well is that when elsa sees this person murder her calf her trauma response is silence As the book progresses, like you said, we do see this theme come and go. But before we get into anything else in the book, I did want to just talk about the Sami people. Because this is something that me, coming into this book, had no knowledge of. I found myself Googling a lot while I was reading this book, just certain terminology and who these people were, where they resided, and the history of their discrimination. And actually, I think that's part of her writing style. I noticed that a lot of the Sami terms she uses weren't explained in footnotes or parentheses, which often happens when you're reading about a different country or culture. And I liked that she didn't do that because then it put the burden on me, the reader, to go and do that research. I didn't feel like she was speaking specifically to somebody outside of her culture. Yeah. And I don't Mm -hmm. think we mentioned yet, but this book is actually translated. And the translator is Rachel Wilson Broyles. Honestly, the writer and the translator both have to be extremely talented writers because it's hard to translate something directly into English when there may not be a word for it. Actually, the name of this book, Again, please forgive me for the pronunciation of things, but it's actually Stowed is the name of the book, I think. S-T-O-D-T. That actually means Mm -hmm. theft, but the word stolen just has a way better ring to it. And so that word itself, I think, was translated in a beautiful way. So for who the Sami people are. So the Sami people are an indigenous people located in the northern regions of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. During the era of colonial expansion, the Sami people were colonized by Scandinavian countries. They considered the Sami to be quote-unquote primitive in their ways and just 
wanted to assimilate them into the dominant culture. So they talk about this a lot in the book without actually saying it outright. For example, Mm -hmm. Elsa, she goes to a a boarding school where it's Swedish-speaking only. I think that was like a big form of trying to erase the Sami people as they were by not allowing them to speak their native tongue. Land ownership is an issue. A lot of people have a lot of hatred towards the indigenous people for owning large plots of land, which are rich in resources, and so they try and exploit them. Just in general, there's just a lot of hatred towards the Sami people in the community that they're living in in this book. A lot of it is from her own experience. Mm -hmm. So the author and Helen Listadius, I think. Yeah, she's part Sami and part Trondetalian, which is also a minority in Sweden. And she actually went to one of these boarding schools. Because of the forced assimilation, her mother never taught her Sami. Mm -hmm. And so she doesn't speak Sami, she speaks Swedish because of a lot of the forced assimilation that her mother was, was kind of beaten out of her through this school process. And then so for her, a lot of the research she did for the book was going back and talking to her mom and talking about all these experiences that she and her family have been through. Mm-hmm. And actually, in 2019, the Swedish church published a 1,100-page anthology that detailed the ways that the church had supported the state in erasing Sami identities and oppression. And then in 2021, the church actually acknowledged its role in all of that publicly and apologized. But the government has still said nothing, mm-hmm. which I'm really sad to say I'm not surprised, but it's just really terrible. It's 2023 where we live in an age where minorities are speaking out for the first time. And I'm so glad that we're doing this book because I didn't even know who the Sami were before I picked up this book. So I'm just, I'm so glad that we're reading it so that we can learn about it and hopefully make other people interested in knowing about it as well. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the book. Yes. (laughs) Well, what did you think about the fact the book was divided into three different parts? I had a little bit of trouble differentiating the second and the third parts. Me too. Those were a little more seamless. I think it could have just been two parts with the first one being when she's nine years old and the next one being when she's 18 or 19. But I liked that she started it out with Elsa as a child. And actually before this, most of her work, none of it's been translated into English until this one, but most of her work has been young adult fiction. And so she kind of... It seems like she used that as a stepping stone to get into the story where she's still in white territory with her being nine and then 19, but it's a little bit more of a mature story. Yeah, I agree. Also, I just noticed in this book, I had very short chapters. Mm -hmm. When I first started reading it, I didn't like the short chapters because I preferred like a more seamless storyline. But as I was going through the book, I was so excited to see what the next chapter was going to start off as that I really enjoyed the short chapters. One of the things I loved in this book was the characters. So Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to start there. We can start with Elsa because she's the main character. What was your impression of her? I want to say, reading about the author, that I saw a lot of her in the character of Elsa. Mm -hmm. Just like this badass, motivated, individualistic, just powerful woman Mm -hmm. that she becomes in the later stages of the book. What about you? I really liked Elsa. I think Mm -hmm. she stands out not only because she's the protagonist, but she's the one who speaks out. You know, everyone in her community kind of 
stay silent and she's the one who chooses to speak out. I don't know if that's because of what she witnessed or more likely if she has something different in her character that pushed her to do that. Because I imagine most of the people in that community have witnessed those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, they talk about it in the beginning of the book when Elsa first finds her reindeer calf killed, that this is obviously not the first time this has happened in this community. It sounded like it had been happening since before Elsa was born, so that must have been over 10 years. And so when Elsa grows up, she becomes the person that decides not to stay silent about that. I think that brings our theme that we picked back into the discussion because the community is scared. Yeah. They don't really know for sure who's the person that is behind all these killings. And it's obviously a hate crime. So they're scared about what would happen if they did take action. And Elsa becomes one of the first people to speak out and continuously speak out about these hate crimes that are being committed on her community. Yeah, I think part of it is the fear. And then the other part of it also is resignation. You know, like her father talks about how they've filed over hundreds of, like there are hundreds of closed police reports. And nobody seems to be taking any kind of action and a lot of the community seems to think they've been doing this and feeling angry and trying to change something for so long and what is the point Mm -hmm. and that's so sad that people have been fighting for something for so long and then just to give up this is why children are necessary in this world Mm -hmm. it's because as we get older we get tired we give up we don't have as much motivation to fight for the things that we want to fight for but next generation of people are full of that energy that you need to be able to fight and they come with a different perspective on things too which is what elsa does yeah but the cruel irony of that is that no one takes children seriously yeah which is also sad but i think you know talking about the parts that you mentioned of the book i think it was smart of Lestadius to have that whole first part be when they were children because she easily could have had it been a prologue of her seeing the man killing her reindeer and then the book could start when she was 18. But even though the book was about so many different kinds of traumas, a lot of it felt very cozy. Yeah. The way she writes, and it's probably partly the translator too, a lot of it, especially when they're kids, feel very warm. Mm -hmm. Like there's one sentence where Anna Steina and Elsa are coming back from playing in the snow when Hannah's making hot chocolate for them. And it goes, the girls cuddled up next to each other on the bench. Anna Steina's eyes were puffy and she gave a big yawn. Elsa pressed up against her. She was warmer than the sun. Aww. And it was just so cute. A lot of parts of it were really sweet. I enjoyed it. Yeah, you're right. It's like the big traumatic, horrible thing happens in the first part of the book. But that's not what I think of when I think of the first part of the book. I think of this warm, cozy description. And just going off of that, her writing was so descriptive. The imagery Mm -hmm. I had in my head was just flawless. Like every paragraph I could picture it exactly in my head and i love books that can do that yeah part of what i loved about the first part also was the friendship between elsa and anna steina i thought it was really Mm -hmm. sweet a lot of the relationships i think were set up very nicely in the first part because you kind of love hana and lassa because they're also protective of the kids and then anna steina and elsa grow apart Mm -hmm. in the second and third part 
And that contrast makes Elsa stand out as somebody who's different from the rest of the community. And it seems like Anastana takes a much more traditional view even than the Mm -hmm. average. She kind of gets married quickly. She's going to have a baby. There's one part I thought was interesting where Hannah maybe talks about how she should have been Elsa's mother and Marika should have been Anastana's mother. And that was really interesting because I felt like maybe part of it had to do with temperament. But there also were these parts that cropped up about how Marika, Elsa's mom, is not son, yeah. where she's considered by a lot of their communities an mm-hmm. outsider. I'm glad you brought that up because there's one part in the book where Elsa has a thought where she wishes that Hannah was her mother. But then immediately after, she felt guilt for even thinking that. Mm-hmm. And I think as like a child, you always compare yourself to other people's families where you're like, well, her mom's okay with doing this. Why aren't you okay with doing this? I think part of it was that. But then in the second part of the book, when she's much older, she seems to look for comfort in Hannah more than her mom. Yeah, she does. And I wonder if she's also perpetuating some of those views that maybe she thinks her mom will understand the trauma that she's going through. Or maybe she also wants to shield her parents from some yeah. of it. I think another big part of it too is that it seems like the way that Anna's family and Elsa's family deal with trauma are very different. Elsa's family, they don't talk about things because it's easier to just forget about it versus Hannah's view with these traumatic experiences is no, you should talk to your child about it because like we talked about silence as a trauma response, it can be dangerous if you let those feelings bottled in for so long they can blow up in violent ways it doesn't always happen that way but it it can and i think it does with lassa he's a very happy character in the book the scenes with him and anna and elsa playing are the most wholesome like they're just playing and he's just Mm -hmm. flipping them upside down and there's like a lot of laughter and he's just a ray of sunshine and unfortunately, he, this is part of the trigger warning that Trithi talks about in the beginning of this episode, but eventually he commits suicide. Yeah, and I think that is what also opens Hana up to her family and to Elsa, is because she saw what happened when people stay silent. And she never knew how it was with Lassa. She doesn't constantly blame herself, but she does think about the fact that if she had asked or if they talked about it a little more. And I think that helps her bond with Elsa more because Elsa wants to talk about it and she wants to do something about it. And Hannah has had this happen in her life too, where she can't just ignore it or be silent about it anymore because look what happened. Lassa's death crushed me. Me too. It was really sad. Lassa committing suicide, it comes a little bit full circle because Mateus tries to commit suicide too towards the end. And I think the author, Lysidius, talks about how everybody in her community knows at least somebody who has committed suicide. I know. And before she wrote the book, two of her cousins did as well. It's so sad. And it really made me think about how the treatment and prevention that we have for mental health is so geared to a very specific audience. Mm-hmm. It's very like western relatively affluent thing mm-hmm. just because by word of mouth and experience I've, i had so many friends of mine talk about how they might be a person of color from a different culture and they go to a therapist about something and the therapist just doesn't get it I and know. the whole way that the mental health 
industry is constructed is just geared towards that type of person where how could somebody from this culture who's gone through this kind of trauma even start with the psychologist who grew up in Cincinnati and went to Vassar and do you know what I mean it's like how can you even attempt to fix what has happened just speaking from my own experience is the boundaries that I have are very different than the boundaries that a non-Indian family would have. Yes. That holds true with any culture, really. It's the same problem with the Sami people as well. It's like if they had gone to therapy, if they had even had the access to that stuff, which I don't think they did, they couldn't speak up to their problems the same way that majority of America could. Yeah, and I am really glad in the end that Mateus goes to that center mm-hmm. where most it sounds like most of the, the providers and the staff were Sami people mm-hmm. who could understand what he was going through but it didn't feel like an all-rounded solution yeah and it just sucks because like I think at some point before he goes to that institute they just talk about him going to a clinic to maybe get antidepressants or just get some kind of medication to help him out and he talks about how he knows this person that works in the hospital and he doesn't want to be seen by other people yeah and it just sucks that there's shame that can be connected to mental health and in today's world in America I think that shame aspect is diminishing to some levels but in other areas of the world I don't think that's the case no and it's not even through my own personal experience in India just because the psychologists or therapists they're Indian it doesn't mean that they are necessarily well trained Mm -hmm. there's a lot of traditional and somewhat backwards thinking even within mental health providers in other countries and cultures it's tough I mean They mention in the book that the suicide rates in Sami people are higher than the rest of the Scandinavian countries. I mean, there's probably a million reasons why that's the case, including their geographical location. They talk a lot in the book about how they're very isolated to the rest of the community because they live so far away. The police refuse to come over to their land most of the time just because it takes extra effort to get there. So for mental health, if they did want to go to a hospital, it's not like it's easy for them to do that. One of the other reasons probably is, they talk about this in the book as well, that some of the Sami people don't want to go to school. And so with low levels of education, I think there unfortunately is a direct connection to suicide rates. Since you mentioned that, how the community views these things, there was a lot of, the violence in the book is really prominent from outsiders of the community. But I also saw a lot of strife within the community. It felt like there was a lot of policing where people feel like in order to preserve their culture, they need to gatekeep who they can call as part of that culture, like how Marika was an outsider and how the negativity associated with anybody that has anything to do outside of it. And I think that's not unique to the Sami people. That's true of anything. Like Even Mm -hmm. in our culture, people call some brown people coconuts because they're too white or like brown people in the United States like not being desi enough you know it's like all this gatekeeping as to who can be part of the community is mistaken for preserving the culture and that made it sad too because it's not even like the community had a united front everyone was kind of individual yeah and divided yeah 
gosh, this this book was so complex in like every way possible. And there's I feel so like we, much. We keep steering away from the actual book because there's so many things to talk about. But to get back into the book a little <laughs> bit more, <laughs> let's talk about Elsa as a character again, but in the later stages of the book. Because she grows up to be this fighter. She wants to fight for her family, fight for her community. And she makes friends with, you mentioned Mina or Mina. And Mina is a lawyer. She is also determined to fight. She's a, study she's a law student. Yeah, like by the end, I think she applies to law school. Yeah, and there's a lot that happens in this part of the book that seem very political. One crazy thing that happens in the, is that yet another grown reindeer is murdered on their land. She takes the parts of the reindeer that have been slaughtered and just bags it up and takes it herself to the police station because she tries calling the police. They make some excuse that they can't come to their land at that moment. And nobody's there to talk to her about what happened. So she leaves the evidence on their doorstep. And at that exact time, there happens to be a journalist that asks Elsa to talk about what happened. The journalist uses this as a clickbait type article that they publish. And that creates a lot of attention to Elsa and her family. I don't think the majority of the community was even happy that someone finally spoke out about this. Mm -hmm. I think that their reaction was mostly fear. That that would trigger something in the people that were committing these hate crimes to something worse. Which it did. Mm-hmm. Robert Isaacson comes over at one time and is about to kill Elsa. Yeah. I feel like the book did a really good job of conveying those emotions. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt Elsa's rage. I know. And like, fear, too. And fear. There was one part where she was in town and there were some villagers saying really hateful things about her, non-Sami people. And she says, or she thinks it would be really easy to run them over because she's in her car. And in my head, I was like, yes, run them over. Like, I, I was so angry. <laughs> yeah, and even in the part where Robert Isaacson comes over with the attention to kill her, basically how they describe it is that Elsa's home alone, and Robert Isaacson is drunk, has a rifle, and he's, like, slurring and abusing and just being very violent in his demeanor, and then breaks their window glass open in an attempt to break into her home. She calls the police. The police are like, we can't come right now because of blah, blah, blah reason. That's pretty usual. Yeah. yeah. And then she calls her dad and her dad immediately comes over. And luckily nothing happens. But that whole scene, I was like just on the edge of my seat. So scared for her. Yeah. And that part is where the story really takes off. I think my one criticism is I felt like the end of the second part and a little bit of the third part got a little repetitive. But then once that happens, mm-hmm. it's just a dominoes effect. Because yeah. after that yeah. is when she is going to the woods one night and Robert Isaacson is underneath his snowmobile. It's overturned and it looks like he can't get out. And then it was – and in my head when I was thinking about it, I also saw – because they're making this into a movie – on Netflix, and I saw the scenes in my head. I was like, she's going to aim the rifle, and then it's going to be a zoom out of the forest, and there's going to be a gunshot, and you're going to think that she killed him, because that's what we thought when we were reading the book. And then it's going to go to Mateus at the river, and he's about to commit suicide. He has these boots that are unsafe and will drag you under the water. 
oh my gosh, I'm getting like worked up thinking about it because it's just like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and every second you're like, every character is in danger and you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's like plot twist after plot twist after plot twist, like in a span of like 50 pages. And you never know exactly what's happening. You have your guesses, but most of them actually aren't right. And the last like 50 pages of the book were just mind-blowing like so talented i mean and the fact that we both pictured the same thing in those scenes just shows how like amazing description she uses to create that imagery yeah, in and our heads the author elastadius is a journalist and i think that really shows mm-hmm. through in her writing because the way she exposes the cracks in the system through these stories and accounts feels very journalistic she doesn't just say the police are useless mm-hmm. or the government has suppressed them she tells it through these stories and her writing is also so descriptive in a photographic way that we were able to see these as mm-hmm. like images or movie scenes in our heads yeah since we were talking about the end what did you think of the last chapter this is one thing we didn't talk about yet on the first chapter of the book when elsa finds her calf murdered she takes the ear yeah. of the calf and she keeps it she dries it like so that it doesn't smell and she keeps it in her pocket in times of desperation despair like any like hard emotion she goes to this ear as a comfort item like a stuffed animal i guess and she never shows this ear Mm -hmm. to anybody only she knows about it but in this last chapter of this book she tells john isaac who is hannah's second son first son second child Mm -hmm. and john isaac has a lot of resentment towards elsa because elsa's this fighter and is speaking out for the Sami people, which brings a lot of attention to their family, which in turn causes John Isaac to be bullied in school. And so he directly blames his bullying on Elsa, unfortunately. At the end of this book, Elsa gives John Isaac this ear and tells him the truth. And I could see that being the start of the sequel to the book and that sequel being about John Isaac. It just seemed like a progression moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it in some ways it felt a little random to me. Maybe random is not the right word, but John Isaac and his stuff happening at school was very much a side story throughout the book, and it was one of the ripple effects of everything that was going on. That to end on it and have it be such a poignant moment didn't totally fit for me, but I did see how she was bringing everything kind of back in a circle where this doesn't just end like they're the next exactly. generation is also going to be affected by the same thing so i think in that way it did kind of make sense yeah i think not only did it kind of bring in like oh this is a problem that will continue through generations but i think it was also ended with a more hopeful note that things are changing and the next generation will be growing up in an environment where this change is very prevalent in their lives. I hope so, because the whole time I was reading the book, I was really shocked by some of the violence and hate speech and things that didn't get taken seriously for what they were. And this is my own ignorance. I felt like I was living in a different century. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that I think more than the violence and the abuse that they were receiving that shocked me, it was more the ignorance of the police that shocked me. The whole premise of the book is that 
the person who's committing these crimes, who's Robert Isaacson, cannot be arrested because these hate crimes are considered theft, not murder, because mm-hmm. reindeer are domesticated animals, which makes no sense to me. If a human will torture and murder a dog, and you're not like, oh yeah, that dog was stolen. It's like, no, that dog was murdered. And the fact that it that changes just because it's a reindeer and they're in a different setting and a different culture, that would change the meaning of the word stolen. Yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah. I, I mean, towards the end, also, Matthias sees Robert's dog running over. And he picks up the dog and he, like, chucks it onto the island. And I hated Robert Isaacson so much that my initial thought was to laugh. And then I was like, oh, no, like, it's, like, poor thing. It's a dog. Like, it's just, like, scared. I mean, they make it very clear in this book that Robert loves his dog. And so this villain character is not incapable of human affection. Um, Which makes his crimes worse, mm -hmm. right? Because he loves animals, yet he's still going to slaughter them to send a message across. Because his hate for the stomach people overcomes his Mm -hmm. love for animals. And his dog is his dog, so he treats it differently. But when Mateus throws his dog over to the island, it didn't seem like he meant to do it. I think it was just an action that he did out of panic and desperation and just not knowing what else to do. I don't think he was trying to hurt the dog. No. But then that happening, Robert Isaacson sees that his dog is on this island and puts these waiters on that Matthias was going to use to commit suicide and jumps in the river to save his dog and then drowns and dies. And it's just irony that he spends his this entire book killing all these reindeer and then he dies trying to save his dog. Yeah, you're right. It was kind of a fitting end for him, I guess. And speaking of fitting ending, do you think... So when Elsa comes up and he's stuck under the snowmobile, well, two things. One, should she have tried to save him or call for help? Or was it okay that she didn't? And then the other thing is, how did he get out from under that snowmobile? Because that is kind of what saved Mateus, and they kind of allude to the fact that Lhasa was looking down on them and intervened somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Elsa was going to leave. Robert Isaacson. I think fleetingly she did leave, but I think she knew she was going to go back for him. And I mean, she did go back for him, but, and same with Mateus. I don't think he fully thought through what he was doing. And Robert's death was just an unfortunate series of events and he ended up dying. But I don't think Elsa and Mateus had it in them to actually make this elaborate plan. To kill him. But there's a difference between planning and lack of action. Yeah, that's true. Right? Like they, both of their lack of action is what leads him to die, right? Because if she initially had called somebody or helped him get on the snowmobile, he may not have gone towards the river. Mm-hmm. He may have gone somewhere else. And then if Mateus had told him that the boots, the waders were faulty and broken, he may not have worn them. Well, I think he did say. Like, those boots are not safe. You should not use those. But I think Robert just didn't believe him because I think he was – Robert thought that he was 
trying to get him to not go into the river to save his dog. That's what I'm saying, I guess. I think there's a lot of things that could have happened and a lot of things that they could have done, but I'm not sure if Robert would have survived either Mm -hmm. way. That's how I look at it. Interesting. How did you look at it? I felt like everything lined up, perfectly is the wrong word, but everything lined up so well that he died. And if any of those events were different, if she, like, if Elsa hadn't gone at that time, or if she had called the police, or if she'd helped him get out from the snowmobile, or if she had shot him, or, like, literally every point, if something else happened, everything could have ended up differently. So do you think that Lasse created this series of events to happen, which he was trying to kill Robert, like, supernaturally? Partly. I think he was trying to protect Mateus. And Elsa. Yeah, both. because if Robert hadn't gone down there, the only way that Mateus wouldn't have killed himself is if he had overcome his desire to die and been able to walk away from that situation, which we don't know if he would have or not. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they do talk a lot in the book about how Lasse appears in Elsa's life, like fleetingly in moments. And I think I saw a lot of descriptions online of them describing that as supernatural, but I don't think that's supernatural. I think when you have someone that close to you pass away, they're always in your thoughts and you know them so well and there's such a presence in your mind and your heart that you know how they would guide you. It's almost like you're talking to them. But And so I didn't think it was supernatural at all. But now that you bring it up, I think maybe this was Lassie's doing and he created this scenario to end Robert Isaacson's life because we don't know how he ended up underneath that truck. They do allude to a lot of different parts and very subtly these elements that could be considered supernatural. Like at one point when Elsa's a child, she goes out to look at the Northern Lights and her grandma calls her back in because she starts yelling and she says you need to come back like you can't go out and look at the northern lights because they have a significance for their culture and then also her grandfather and then it's implied that it's been passed on to elsa has healing powers like they are able to stop bleeding which is not not something easily explained and so there are all of these small little things that don't completely fit within what we would expect from the world and i feel like it's come up so much at this point of like magic realism magic realism and i'm like i don't think this is the other i think western books not alluding to any of these things is the anomaly and we have just been reading through that lens yeah i think that's true because the fact that we're focusing on books that aren't necessarily on Americans in our society just shows how prevalent mm-hmm. in every other culture. Mm-hmm. I also saw a lot of patriarchy in this book. I think in general, more traditional cultures tend to lean towards gender roles. And we did see that in this book where it was like the men were the ones that would take care of the reindeer and the woman wouldn't. And Elsa was like the anomaly where she wanted to help the reindeer and not necessarily just get married and and raise babies. But in other ways, I also saw it in the sense where in media, when Elsa and Mina were talking to journalists and just trying to get the word out on what was happening to their people it just kind of seemed like oh this is just another woman being dramatic this would not be the same story if the main character was a boy and 
we had already mentioned a little bit that this book has so many themes and really important, heavy topics. I'm interested to see what they focus on in the movie because movies always, almost always cut some things out. I guess we'll see what they decide to emphasize. I'm so excited about the movie. I think it just how I was talking about in the beginning of this episode about how descriptive this book was and I was able to picture everything effortlessly in my mind that you know books like that are going to make great movies. I'm nervous that it's going to be scary. I think it will yeah. be. I mean, it's supposed to be. This book is like technically a thriller and although I didn't feel that much like it was a thriller book, I could see it becoming that. She also, looking kind of forward she intended this to be the first in a set of three and the second mm. book came out already it's called oh yeah it's called straff in swedish which translates mm. to punish but i don't see a translated version anywhere oh it came out i think in february or march mm. and I'm waiting for it to get translated <laughs> It would be yeah. odd for them to translate only the first one and not No, they the can't others. do that. They yeah. can't do that to us. <laughs> I wonder what's going to be about. I wonder if my theory about it being about John Isaac is going to be true. It's going to focus on the school plot. So it'll be I about see. children who are taken to their families and forced to attend a nomadic school. I didn't read if the characters would be the same or not. So I have a passage. It happens at the very beginning of the book. Nothing happens. But I think I picked this passage because I wanted to show how descriptive her writing was. Mom and Dad were whispering above her. She was tucked into the snowmobile sled wrapped in a blanket. Her skis were under the reindeer pelt. No one was even thinking about how she'd skied all the way to the coral. No one said a word about it. Elsa closed her eyes. The snowflakes that brushed her face melted fast, and the silvery frost in her hair was gone. She was herself again. Her parents, Anna and Isa, had found her sitting beside her reindeer. They asked her what had happened, but she was mute. Inside her mitten, she squeezed a little piece of ear. The blood had congealed, but the fur was still soft. She didn't show it to them, even when they exclaimed, upset, that that bastard had taken the ears, all of one and a half of the other. Sometimes you were required to show the ear markings to prove your ownership of the reindeer if it had been run over or killed by a predator, but she wouldn't let anyone have this ear. Her Naskalu was dead. So sad. I know. Her little calf, little baby reindeer. I know. I loved the writing in this book. I know. Me it was too. so evocative. And I think somewhere, we talked about this maybe when we were introducing the books, but somewhere it was described as being like Louise Erdrich's writing. Mm hmm. I didn't think so. <laughs> Neither did I. I was scared to say it because I, I saw it literally everywhere, but I was like, it's not like I didn't. Like, I liked one writing more than the other. I think No, they, they were, were both different. great writers, yeah. but they were different. And I felt like it was more clickbait mm. or more likely that they are just conflating indigenous stories with writing styles, which was weird. Mm -hmm. So. Well, is it time to filter the chai? Yes. Let's do it. Ego first. Okay. I. <sighs> <laughs> I love it when we, like, cannot say our ratings and answer these questions. And that's the whole point of the podcast. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to commit. I think I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10. I already mentioned my one critique of the book, but I think that part of the pacing being slow was there was a bigger gap at that point when I put it down and picked it up again. I was busy for, like, a week. So it was probably a me problem. 
What did you give it? I also gave it a 9 on 10. I love this book. I think so far, 2023, this is probably my favorite book of the year. It was just so well written. I love the premise of it. Some parts were super, super violent, which I feel like I would usually hate. And I did hate, but the good parts just overpowered those moments so much that I would still read it over and over again. But I just loved it. And I didn't critique it in any way, but I will never give a book a 10 on 10 unless I would die for that book. So Yeah, your 10 out of 10 has to have some weight. Yeah, so I don't give a lot of books 10 on 10. So this one is 9 on 10, which is honestly just as good as a 10 on 10. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think this book stands the test of time? Yes, I think it will. Honestly, I just want everybody in my life to read this book right now. Yeah, I think so too. I think this book definitely stands the test of time. And I feel like the more time I have away from the book, I'm still going to keep thinking about it. And yeah, it gave me the feeling of, I don't want to put this in the shelf discovery because it's not really related, but it had the kind of impact that I feel like To Kill a Mockingbird has, where it brings mm. up these themes and these points and they persist throughout like centuries. And I don't, I, I think this one should have that same kind of impact. Yeah, I agree. Let's go to shelf discovery. What's yours? So, you know how you said that the first part of the book was like really cozy and like wholesome and really nice it's east by edith Pateau. i almost was gonna put that down but then i was like but that's too cozy and this book is too real but it's okay because my book yeah. is too real so both of the recommendations should bounce up okay cool so east is i don't know shruti we read this book together when we were like in the seventh grade and we've loved it since but it's a modern retelling of Beauty and the Beast. But it's located in, I want to say it's also located in like a Scandinavian country. Yeah. It's very, they talk about snow. They talk about their culture. They talk about their way of living. Obviously, this is all overshadowed by the Beauty and the Beast theme of the book. But in general, it's just full of magic, romance, nostalgia. And it's one of my favorite books. One of my favorite comfort books, I will say. It is very comforting. I feel like reading it again now. <laughs> I know. It's so good. My book, I had a lot of trouble finding a book that I thought had the same kind of impact and emotional rawness of this book. I ended up picking a book that is also about Indigenous people, and I wanted to not do that because I I didn't want it to be like the obvious connection, but the book I picked is Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Soko. And the story is about a young Native American. He's a young man at this point. He's probably in his early 20s, and he was a prisoner of war in World War II. The book starts when he comes back to his reservation and he feels really alienated and affected by all the trauma he's been through. And the book goes through his emotions and his trauma and also to his traditions and the people around him. So that was the reason I thought of this book because I felt like the connection between ritual and trauma is very similar. Even in Stolen, there's a lot of ritual and tradition surrounding the reindeer herding culture and how they go through the cycles every year and what it means to them. So that was why I picked this book. I still can't believe you picked the same theme. I know. I, I had was kind of wondering if it was going to happen. And I was like, I 
I was like, no, this theme, no, I was like, this theme that I'm picking is so unique and so different. Like, there's no way. And then you said silence, and I was like, oh. Wow, it's almost like we're best friends and we, like, think the same. Please, please, you're not (laughs) my best friend. (laughs) Okay, podcast (laughs) over. (laughs) So, next on our world tour, we are heading out of Europe and south to Nigeria. Neha, tell us what book we're reading. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Half the Yellow Sun by Shimamanda Nozi Adedichi. This is a story of the years leading up to the Nigeria-Biafra War in the 1960s. It's by the same author that wrote Americana, which we talked a lot about at the end of season one. So I'm excited to read it. Yeah, me too. And as always, we really appreciate your love and support. And if you want other ways to love and support us, please rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can interact with our content on Instagram and Twitter and repost it so that other people are able to find out about the podcast and leave us tips, recommendations, books to check out. And even if you just strongly disagree with something we said, we would love to hear about it. Yes, all opinions welcome. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Shruti, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you, so send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.